Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Later in today's episode, we're going to be welcoming Jeremy Schneider onto the podcast. Jeremy is the founder of Personal Finance Club, which if you're on Instagram and you follow any finance accounts, you probably follow Jeremy. He's got close to 600,000 followers. He's an awesome voice in the space, and it really is a terrific conversation. But before we bring on Jeremy, we'll go through a review of the week, and then I'll do a little bit of monologuing at you. So first, review of the week. Baggins wrote in and said, JC, accessible, easy to follow guidance, and a voice like butter. Five stars. Baggins, thank you so much for the kind words. If you're listening to this, Baggins, shoot me an email, jesse at bestinterest.blog, and we'll get you hooked up with some cool best interest swag. Now, in today's conversation with Jeremy, we talk about a few different personal finance topics, investing, home ownership, some mistakes we've made in the personal finance space. So I thought I'd go over a couple ideas up front along those topics. The first one is from an article I wrote in August of 2023, and it's called, Why'd I Buy a Home with a 6.5% Mortgage? You see, after a newsletter that I wrote, reader of the blog, Nick, wrote into me and he said, congrats on the new house. I'd definitely be interested in seeing an interest rate thought process article. I feel like I lucked out when I did, and if I had been a year later, I'd probably still be renting somewhere. Nick is alluding to the fact that he bought a house in 2022 at a lower interest rate. So Nick, here's an answer for you. Uh, over the past 18 months, mortgage rates have shot up from 2.25% to 3%. That was for 15 and 30-year mortgages, up to 657 now even 8% for some 30-year mortgages. And while home prices have slightly decreased in recent months, the national average is still far higher than it was three years ago. The upshot of those two facts is a double gut punch to housing affordability. Real quick example, a $320,000 30-year mortgage at 3%. That costs $1,349 per month. Again, that was $320,000, 30-year mortgage, 3%, costs about $1,350 a month. That same home would now likely require a $400,000 mortgage at 7 or 8%. If we just use 7%, because that's the number I used when I wrote this article, that costs $26.60 per month, literally doubling the monthly mortgage bill. So with that being the case, why did my wife and I choose to buy a new house with a 6.5% mortgage right now? Isn't that, you know, a terrible personal finance move? My first response and my most important one, your house is a dwelling meant to meet your family's needs. It's not an investment. A stock index fund, that's an investment. A treasury bond, that's an investment. A home, however, is a lifestyle choice. Same as the clothes you wear or the car you buy. I mean, sure, it's a huge lifestyle choice, don't get me wrong, and the cost of a home cannot be understated. But it's not an investment. Now, don't get me wrong, I would love if our home appreciated in value. I plan on caring for it deeply because it's a huge outlay of money. But that doesn't necessarily make it an investment. An investment returns a cash flow to you, just like a bond's interest payments or like a stock's dividend payments. What cash flow exactly does your primary home produce? 
And let's look at total cost of home ownership, TCO. I'm talking about mortgage, interest, taxes, insurance, maintenance, everything. The real inflation adjusted return on residential real estate over the past 100 years is 0.5% per year. Yuck. Stocks, stocks are 6.9% per year. Bonds are 2.3% per year. A house, to me at least, it feels more like a hard to upkeep asset. It's not an investment. So what did I think about instead? If a home isn't an investment, then, then how did I ponder this home buying decision? How did I accept a 6.5% interest rate when it was only 3.0% just a few years ago? Well, let's go through some of the facts. First, we loved the house. That's first and foremost. It's a terrific house and the former owners, they went many extra miles to take care of it and to track their maintenance record over time. That's huge. I felt confident I was buying a great home. Second, faced with the math in front of us, sales price and interest rate, there are two questions you could ask. The first question, will this deal get better in the future? And the second question, is this deal affordable for us today? To me, the first question is irrelevant. This particular house won't be available in the future unless we're oddly lucky. So instead, only the second question matters. Is this deal affordable for us today? If the answer is yes, then move ahead with your decision-making process. The third reason, life does not wait for interest rates. Kelly and I, we reached a point in life where we needed to graduate from the starter home we were in. Now, if I had a guarantee that rates would drop in 2024, maybe we would have waited, but we don't have that guarantee. And if they do drop, we can refinance our current loan to our benefit. Fourth, there are fewer home buyers right now. The six, seven, eight percent mortgage rates have forced many buyers to search lower in the market. It might even be forcing them out of the market altogether. That sucks. But selfishly, it did work in our favor. The fifth reason, the crazy housing market also affected the sale of our old house. That old house, the starter home I just referenced a minute ago, it more than doubled in value in just the past five years. That certainly eases my pain as a buyer for sure. And the sixth reason, our salaries, Kelly and my, our salaries, they're growing. If we can afford the fixed mortgage payment today, I feel confident it'll only get easier to come in the future. That's the benefit of fixed payment loans. Now, life doesn't always wait for you, and you can't always wait for life either. Some investors start their 401k savings in the late 90s, and then they immediately got crushed by the dot-com bubble, and then again by the great financial crisis. But looking back on it today, investing those initial dollars was still a very smart move. I think our housing purchase will work out much better than those investors' poor timing, but the example is worth considering. What if this house never appreciates $1, and what if we can never refinance our mortgage? Even in that bad scenario, we still have a home we can afford while hitting our other financial goals. The home meets my family's needs. My 401k, my Roth IRA, they are still well-funded, and I don't need my home to be an investment too. Now, later in the episode, Jeremy is going to walk us through his seven sins of investing. And that made me think back to an article I wrote in 2021, seven of my money mistakes and the lessons learned. So let's go through them one by one. Money mistake number one, not renting my fun. I once heard radio host Colin Coward say that you should buy normal life, but you should rent your fun. It makes sense to buy healthy groceries, to buy comfortable shoes, to buy a reliable car. You need those things every day in your life, 
life in that way is a constant. But fun things in life, they might be seasonal or weekend only. Does it make sense to buy a snowmobile that you'll only use eight weekends a year? Well, maybe it might fall high on your bimodal passion graph that we talked about on episode 68. Does it make sense to buy a boat? Back when I was an engineer, some of my coworkers, they sailed every weekend during the summer. They planned sailing vacations on Lake Ontario. They love sailing. A full purchase of a boat made sense for them. But for the rest of us, renting a boat or renting a snowmobile makes better financial sense. It's too easy to overspend on a shiny object you'll underuse. Now, I've discovered a second category of fun objects. Those that are only fun due to confounding factors. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at a hot tub. Is a hot tub fun? Or is a hot tub fun when you're hot tubbing with other people? That's the lesson I learned. And that's the money mistake I made because of it. It's a story I've written about on The Best Interest before. I bought a hot tub. It's nice, especially on cold winter nights. But my rationale for buying the hot tub was hot tubs are great. They're so much fun. We checked the record and that rationale was determined to be false. Hot tubs aren't great. Hanging out with other people is great. And when it happens to be in a hot tub, that too is great. Oops, I made the mistake. I could scratch my hot tub itch with probably a few trips a year to some Airbnb with a hot tub. The rest of the time, I could just try hanging out with my friends more often. Now, thankfully, I didn't have to borrow money to buy the hot tub. But still, it was an impulsive purchase. It didn't mesh with my financial goals. The hot tub is nice, but buying my fun rather than renting it was a money mistake. Mistake number two, decreasing spending or increasing income. In this world of credit card debt and budgets and dwindling emergency funds, it makes sense to spend less. That's the easiest way to save money. We can enact it today. We can make a change today, just choosing to spend less. But is it the most consequential improvement? No, it's not. Over the long run, you'll be much better off making efforts to increase your income. So let's do some quick math to see why. Sadie makes $50,000 per year. Of that, she saves $10,000. The other $40,000 goes towards bills. In other words, she's spending $3,300 a month. If Sadie needed $500 extra this month, she could cut her $3,300 monthly budget down to $2,800, scrimp and save. If she needed an extra $1,000 this month, she might be able to cut another $500 out of the budget down to $2,300. But do you see where this is headed? At some point, Sadie can't cut any more fat from her budget. She's limited by her survival needs. Frugality and cost-cutting have lower limits. They are bounded. But increasing your income, technically speaking, is unbounded. The upper limit doesn't exist. Now, in reality, we're not all going to be billionaires. We will all hit our personal income ceiling. But Sadie can make a plan to increase her salary. She can look for promotions within her company. She might be able to switch jobs, leverage a raise that way. Making more money is possible for many people in many professions. Now, my first few years of personal finance mistakes, I focused on reducing expenses. And it worked. It worked great. But eventually, I hit a lower limit. Then I looked for ways to increase my income. The results were fast and fantastic. I found a new job, I negotiated my salary higher than offered, and I secured the easiest 30% raise of my life. Cutting spending is fine, you should start there, it's okay. But it's a money mistake to neglect ways to increase your income. My third money mistake, listening to Mr. Market. Now, I read a lot of information about personal finance and investing, I've done so for years. And there has always been someone calling for a crash or a burst bubble or a bear market. 
We as humans, we are risk-averse, overdeveloped monkeys. Fear is normal. But we should try to delineate between irrational reactions to fear and rational reactions to facts. Benjamin Graham's famous example of Mr. Market personifies this irrational fear. If you're not familiar with Mr. Market, he's someone who gets really scared when the market is scared and someone who gets really excited when the market is excited. And he ends up making poor investment decisions because of that. When I was new to investing, I listened to Mr. Market. And that was a money mistake. I allowed my investing choices to be controlled by irrational fears. As a result, I didn't max out my investing accounts. I estimate now that I underinvested by maybe $20,000 in 2014 and 2015. That's an opportunity I'll never get back. Fast forward to today, that $20,000 mistake is probably worth $40,000. If I keep going to the year 2040, that mistake is likely to surpass $100,000 in value. Now, there's no use crying over spilled milk. It doesn't keep me up at night. I've learned my lesson, and I won't make that mistake again. And I hope that you'll learn from my mistake too. Money mistake number four, caring about the Joneses. We've all heard it before, keeping up with the Joneses, buying nice things simply because your peers, the Joneses, have those nice things. But the Joneses might be broke. It's easy to forget that fact. The Joneses might be stretching and stressing their budget to a near breaking point. Are you sure you want to keep up with that? I worked at a software company. It was my first job out of college. They hired tons of 22-year-olds just like me. And I immediately noticed that some of my peers had really nice stuff. They were driving $50,000 cars. They were whining and dining most nights. They were planning cross-country trips on a whim. What's that? $1,000 for a round-trip flight? No problem. I know that pang of envy. I wanted those things too. How were my peers, ostensibly on a similar salary as me, living these lavish lives? There are two obvious answers. One, they had different budgets and different priorities. Two, they had an alternate source of income. Number one will always be true. Everywhere you look in life, people will spend differently than you. My colleagues, they made conscious choices to spend on really nice stuff. I put my money to different uses. It's neither good nor bad. It's just different. Every person spends differently. And as for reason number two, them having alternate sources of income, that's something I have zero control over. Some people are born on third pace. Other people are born in a ditch. It's not fair. It's just luck or the lack of luck. It's something I've written and spoken about before. But to be clear, I certainly shouldn't feel bad that some people are luckier than me. I'm very lucky in my own life. Now, once I'd convinced myself of these truths, my money mistake became obvious. Let the Joneses do their own thing. They're on their own path. I have my own path. On to money mistake number five, hunting mice, not gazelles. Why don't lions hunt mice? I mean, what chance does Mickey Mouse have against the Lion King? Lions could hunt mice in spades. But the energy gained from that small mouse isn't worth the lion's effort. The lion is better off hunting gazelles. We can and should apply a similar thought process in our financial lives. It applies to time management, it makes sense at work, and it makes sense in personal finance. Don't hunt the field mice in your money life. It's a common money mistake. My favorite example is this classic. Oh, I'll, I'll just drive across town to fill up my gas tank. Gas is 10 cents cheaper at that gas station. That is quintessential mouse hunting. Driving five miles, which has a cost, over 10 minutes, which your time does have value, in order to save, say, 10 cents a gallon times 15 gallons just to save $1.50? Driving five miles over 10 minutes to save $1.50? You're spending, both in time and money, way more than you're saving. I'm not saying 
don't go after free money. I would certainly pick up $3 if it was lying on the sidewalk in front of me. That's because sidewalk money costs me two seconds of time and one bend of my back. But the gas savings has a real cost to it, and that cost completely negates the benefit. The $1.50 gas savings is not free. To ignore that fact is a money mistake. It's the same reason lions don't hunt mice. Some easy prey simply aren't worth the effort. Money mistake number six, servant or master. Various philosophers are attributed with saying, money is a great servant, but a terrible master. It's certainly a lesson that I've learned the hard way and continue to learn, both through normal life and through the best interest, and now through work at a wealth management firm. Money is a tool, nothing more, nothing less. Tools help us build. But you also probably know some people who classify as tools, and you don't want them to be your master. Jokes aside, there's a slippery slope toward letting money control you. I'm being transparent here on the best interest. I'm in a healthy money situation, and I have been for a few years. But I still stress out periodically. Without fail, that stress is due to my letting money become more master than tool. Perhaps my favorite articles to write are the ones that involve the psychology of money. Stuff like the fulfillment curve and bimodal spending that we talked about on episode 68. There's a pattern in my work. And that same pattern is borne out when other financial podcasters and writers discuss the psychology of money. Namely, we all ask the same question. How do we optimize money as a tool and minimize its role as a master? And money mistake number seven, no budget, no clue. For many years, I operated without a budget. It's true. Yes, now I'm a budgeting fiend, but there was a time when I had zero clue where my money was going. And that, no surprise, was a massive money mistake. I'd check my bank accounts occasionally. I knew roughly what I spent on groceries and gas, but I couldn't tell you for sure. And I certainly couldn't have found any good ways to improve my finances. It's funny, because of my lack of knowledge, I can't even tell you the opportunities that I missed. That's scary in and of itself. I've mentioned before that every personal finance expert I know they budget or track in some way. They all monitor their spending or they all track their spending in some way. Nobody does nothing. Uh, you don't have to be a budgeting zealot like me, but you can't do nothing when it comes to budgeting. Those are my seven money mistakes and lessons learned. I'm excited to share with you Jeremy's seven sins of investing. Here's a quick ad and then we'll get back to the show. Did you know my written blog, The Best Interest, was nominated for 2022 Personal Finance Blog of the Year, and it's been highlighted in the Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, and on CNBC. I love writing, especially when that writing is to share financial education, and I usually write one or two articles per week. You can read them all at bestinterest.blog. Again, the web address is bestinterest.blog. Check it out. So that, let's bring on Jeremy Schneider. Jeremy is the voice behind Personal Finance Club, a community of champions of the individual investor dedicated to bringing accessible financial education to all. Personal Finance Club believes financial education improves lives and it should be taught in school. You might have seen Jeremy and Personal Finance Club on Instagram where he posts eye-catching financial graphics to almost 600,000 followers. All right, Jeremy, thanks for joining us on the Best Interest Podcast. I thought we could start with an important question. What was your costume for Halloween? Hi, Jesse. This year's Halloween costume was, I was a house. I wore an entire children's playhouse, and then I made a Zillow listing of the house I was wearing 
and I animated the Zillow listing. So it had like a odometer style spinning of the price and interest rate and monthly expenses and things like that. And so it's meant to be a very spooky costume trying to buy a modest starter home in today's housing market. It's such a creative costume. If folks want to check it out, it's on uh, Jeremy's Instagram page, Personal Finance Club. There will be links to that in the show notes, of course. And I think, Jeremy, having followed you for a while, this is a continuation of a trend of some pretty cool Halloween costumes. What have been some of your past costumes? I've always liked the idea of being something topical. So in my 20s, I'd always try to be something that was like in the news or whatever. And then, then in my mid-30s, I went as a CVS receipt. This was before any sort of public persona, any before I had like an Instagram account or anything. And I went to my, I had a job at the time, went to my work on Halloween. We had, we had like a costume contest and everyone saw me in this 13 foot tall CVS receipt. And then they like egged me on to like walk into a CVS wearing it as a joke. And so I did. And I was like, I need to, ref- I need to film it so I can prove to my coworkers that I actually did it. And then I came home and watched the the film. And I was like, this is kind of funny. Like maybe I'll post this to Reddit. And so I upload, I quickly edited it down from like, you know, 10 minutes of video to like three minutes or something. Cause it, you know, it was a little bit boring just when I'm walking <laughs> and stuff. I posted it to YouTube and like I shared it on Reddit. And then went to, like I got like eight or 10 upvotes. I was like, I was like, oh, okay. Like that's pretty good for the first hour. So I go to bed. Then I wake up in the morning and my phone is like smoking because it's like, Every news station, Good Morning America, like, you know, all the, sh- all the sharing sites, like all these people want to buy the rights. There's, I was getting like 100,000 views an hour on YouTube. I was like, it was my <laughs> very first taste of going viral and it, you know, went really viral. So yeah, CBS receipt. I was also a credit card reader one year, like a working credit card reader where people could put the chip in or tap or swipe and it would, you know, approve or deny. I was a working gas pump. Where you could, I had like a, I was like wearing a gas pump and you could use the pump to pour yourself beer and it, it would like, the numbers would go up. I think those are the the funnier ones. That's awesome. And I think your, your creativity in Halloween costumes, it also shows itself when it comes to the cool posts that you're putting up on Personal Finance Club. I think anyone who's been there, they're, they're interesting, varied topics around the personal finance space. And yet I know that Personal Finance Club was founded on two essential rules. So if you could, let's break down those rules one at a time. What is the first essential rule of Personal Finance Club? All right. When I started Personal Finance Club, I saw that if everyone read two or three books on personal finance, then I would not even bother doing this because we'd all kind of be on the same page. But what we hear about in pop culture and media and advertising isn't the truth about how to build wealth. And so I made it very, very simple. Two rules of building wealth. Rule number one is to live below your means. Spend less money than you make. No matter how much money you make, if you spend all your money, you're broke. So if you make half a million dollars a year and you spend half a million dollars a year, a lot of people would think that they're balling. But in reality, there's a word for that. It's called broke. You have zero dollars left at the end of the year. But if you make $60,000 a year and you spend 40000 and a lot of people make 40000 and live their life like that. So if you make sixty and you spend forty, that's $20,000 a year that you are not spending. If you save and invest that over the course of your career, you're easily a multimillionaire. And that leads us to the second rule. And you did, I'm sorry, just to separate it. First rule, live below your means. And the second rule was? The second rule I didn't say yet is invest 
early and often. And right, they are kind of like partners. One is totally less than you make. And the other is investing the difference. Like they kind of go hand in hand. It's hard to talk about one without talking about the other because you can't invest without saving and you can't save. You can save without investing, but that doesn't meet the goal of building wealth. And so, yeah, invest early and often. And, you know, I think that the frugality world is constantly under attack by, you know, materialism and, and advertising and debt and keeping up with the Joneses. The investing world, I think, is constantly bombarded with messages of gambling and speculation, you know, options and crypto and futures and pork bellies. And, you know, and so I think people who hear about investing for the first time think that it's an impossibly complex space that you need to be working for Goldman Sachs on Wall Street to even entertain getting into. But the reality is it's, it's actually pretty simple when done well. And the, the real key isn't being some brilliant trader who can you know, pick stocks. The key is just investing early and often, putting that money away, chunking away into something simple like an index fund or real estate, then just leaving it alone for years. Yeah. Something you mentioned a couple of times there, Jeremy, the advertising, marketing, selling. It's something I've, I've written about and talked about before here. I think the average person might not even be aware of how much advertising has an influence in their lives and is you know, slowly but surely poking and prodding them into making oftentimes purchasing decisions that in the long run are regrettable. All this stuff that we're surrounded by, that stuff used to be money and that money used to be time. Yeah. And thinking through that lens is, is pretty powerful in the personal finance space. You're right. It, you know, in this capitalistic world, we're so accustomed to constantly being bombarded. I think we take for granted how impressionable we all are. You know, and I, I see it from both sides because I am a business owner who knows that mm-hmm. if I'm not pushing my message out, we will never make any sales, right? But on the flip side, as a consumer, I'm always wanting stuff, you know? And because these brands are always pushing their stuff on me and it starts to see, seep into your subconscious. And, you know, it's weird. We live in this like very modern society where we live in homes and have cell phones, but our our bodies are like the result of, you know, millions of years of evolution. I guess that gets a little bit political depending on your view, but, you know, I think everyone agrees it didn't always, it wasn't always like this. It wasn't always like an advertising world. It was like a, hmm, if I know where food is, I'm more likely to survive. And so humans kind of adapted to say, okay, if someone knows where food is, someone knows, someone knows where water is. And so being impressionable and, and like acting on these things helped our civilization or helped our individual survival likelihood. But then it's almost like turned up to 15 when it's no longer about survival and this is about new cars and new apps and and in the worst case like video games like these these like little endorphin boosts whenever you spend money and it just like was meant for like humans communicating for survival has now been basically co-opted by companies just using that same instinct to to make money for themselves yeah, unfortunately, our our brains are getting hacked against us quite quite often. But we can we can move on to some more cheery topics because there are plenty of cheery topics to talk about. Maybe we can get back to the second of personal finance clubs, essential rules: invest early and often. Now, maybe our listeners are familiar with the math, but especially when it comes to investing early, can you walk us through whether it's with a hard example or simply just through some general rules why investing early is so important? I'll start by saying 
You're not too late. Sometimes when I say invest early, some people get the opposite message, which is I missed it. I literally had someone message me once and say, Jeremy, is it too late for me to get started? I'm afraid I missed the boat. I was like, how old are you? And they said 23. And I wanted to like reach <laughs> through my phone and grab them by the neck and just choke them to death and shake them and say, you're not too, you're a little baby. And so, but but it just illustrates a point which like everyone thinks that they missed the boat. And like the Chinese proverb says, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the second best time is today. And while we can't have all bought crypto at 10 cents of Bitcoin or bought Apple in 1984, you know, it's important to think about what is the world going to look like in 20 years and how much you will have wished you started now, right? I'm 43 and I talked to 43. I was like, oh, it's too late. I'm 43. I missed the boat. I'm like, 63-year-old version of you who's going to want to like be wealthy and retire, they're going to be wishing 43-year-old version was like investing early at 43 and often, right? And so, you know, to answer your question about examples, if you put, there, there's been no 40-year period in the history of the stock market where 250 bucks a month doesn't turn into over a million dollars. The worst it's ever been is 1.2 million. Average is about 2 million and the best is about 3 million. So basically- mm. There's been every 40-year period, no matter when it is, the worst time, the best time, no matter when it is, if you can save 250 bucks a month, it turns into between one and $3 million. You know, it's obviously like a big range, but it's at yeah. least a million. It's not That's bad. amazing. And, right. and for anyone who's curious, I just had to pull up Google Chrome. That is $120,000 worth of contributions, 250 a month for 40 years. It's only 120 of contributions, but it gets you to a million in total because of the investment return. So you're like at least 10xing your money. Right. And not only are you 10xing money, your money, but you also have demonstrated saving along the way. 120,000 bucks is a lot of money, a lot more than a lot more money than a lot of people have because they didn't even save the money, right? So if you can save it and get your 120, then invest along the way and get your millions. But, you know, if you do instead of 250 a month, you do 250 a year for 10 years, you're going to have I think about 3,000 bucks. It's dramatically worse. And so you know, that's why early and often both count, right? Don't do a few hundred bucks once a year. It's not going to be enough. But if you do a few hundred bucks every month for many, many, many years, then you're going to be dramatically better off. And I don't harp too much on the math. Like, where would you be after 30 years, after 20 years? You know, you'd be in great shape. And also, once you start and you start to see the traction, it usually accelerates. And so your first year of investing is kind of a boring very unfulfilling year where you're like, okay, doing my 250 bucks, 250 a month, not much is happening. But, you know, in the second year, you're like, oh, okay, the money's making money. And then you're like, oh, I got a raise. I could put some more into it. And so I think starting early and often will cause you to see progress. And when you see progress, you'll cause you to accelerate. And then that 40 year timeline could become 35, could become 30, could become 20. And you'll You'd be able to not only retire, retire early, become wealthy. And some people don't want to wait that long, but I don't know of a faster way to do it. If I did, I would be doing it. And everyone who tries to get rich quick that I've ever seen stays broke forever. So uh, I'd go for the uh, early and often strategy. And not only what you just outlined, is it true for me in that started early and often, I got hooked on it and wanted to learn more or, or wanted to see my accounts grow more. And then, then it kind of pushed me to keep going. But I think the second aspect that was true for me, potentially true for you, Jeremy, and it's true for some readers and listeners I've spoken with is once you hit a point where 
maybe you have a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand dollars. It's different for every person. But you kind of realize you've got this pretty significant pot of money over on the side that you don't necessarily understand how or why it's growing. And it influences you to start researching, to start learning, to start following Personal Finance Club, listening to podcasts, whatever it may be, reading some books. But that really gets the snowball growing over time. For a lot of us, say it's through our 401ks, we start working at 22, we're putting away a few percent, our employer's matching. We wake up at 25, we've got 10 grand in there that we don't really understand. Like, why is it there? How did it get there? And how is it growing? How is it fluctuating $500 or $1,000 a month with the stock market? Let me read John Bogle. Let me read Burton Mulkeel. Or more likely in today's social media age, let me pull up Instagram, see the big personal finance accounts, found someone, you know, find someone like Jeremy. Yeah. I think a lot about lately about static friction. I learned in high school, if you have like a block sitting on the ground and you push it, it takes more force to move it from zero to non-zero speed than it takes to keep moving it. Correct. I think what you just described kind of just, I know so many people who just don't have that first thousand or two or 10,000 or whatever it is. And they're like, I don't understand it. I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to lose my money. And those are all totally valid and reasonable feelings because it's a scary world out there. But if you go take like a hundred bucks and you open up, you do the worst possible thing and open up a Robinhood account and buy random stock or something, you know, not that that's bad, it's just not what I would consider optimal. But then it like wets your beak a little bit. You're like, okay, I see what's going on. You're like, yeah. And then you not only do you see some progress and it motivates you to put more in, but you, you, you're motivated to, to learn a little bit about about it too. And then then you can start really accelerating as you invest more optimally and put more money and then we start to build some real wealth. So if someone was was learning and, and let's say someone's got the the stock side of their investing future down, they're starting to learn, they're comfortable there. Maybe they reach a point in their late 20s, early 30s, and now they're thinking about something that a lot of us at that age group are thinking about renting versus buying home affordability. I was looking at your your Instagram recently, Jeremy, and, and I saw some posts on home affordability, renting versus buying, those kind of questions. What's your audience saying right now about the American real estate market? Right now, it's a rough time to buy a house. I, I think it's there hasn't been a worse time to buy relative to renting in you know like 20 years or something, just because rates are high, prices are high, supply is low, that's going to leave you in a very high payment environment. That said, I think this rent versus Dubai bait always kind of evokes this competitive nature in humans. Like they're trying to solve it and make the right decision and get it right. And and they heard about someone who bought a home in Silicon Valley in the 80s for $400 and now it's worth $6 million and they like they need to do that too. And and the reality is that's not generally what your primary residence is all about. Your primary residence costs you money, almost always, even when you count for the growth of the value of a home because there's mortgage interest and property tax and maintenance and insurance and realtor fees and potentially HOA and utilities and all these costs. And so your primary home is going to cost you money. And so that it's not about cleverly buying the right house that it's going to make you rich. It's about minimizing the price of your house. And then rent versus buy has a lot less to do with magically getting the formula correct to become rich and has a lot more to do with just kind of what's right 
in the moment for you. If you're not going to live there for more than five years, it almost never makes sense to buy. If you are going to live there for more than five years, then you know, kind of decide, do you want to be a homeowner and do all the maintenance yourself or do you want to be a renter and have the flexibility? And there's and either way, it's not like this financial decision that makes or breaks people. It's more about kind of lifestyle. And what's missed in the rent versus buy debate is just the expensive versus modest debate. You know, whatever you do, rent, rent or buy, if you do it modestly and have excess money to be investing either in stocks or in investment real estate, that's other people's real estate that's going to you know pay you income. Your primary home doesn't pay you income, uh, but investment real estate does. Then you're going to be better off. So people, you know, it's a very close to home, literally subject for all of us because it is our home and, and people make these massive decisions and feel very emotionally tied to feeling like, like they didn't screw up or whatever. But the reality is just, just live more modestly, live below your means, invest early and often. Don't worry too much about rent versus buy if you're doing it modestly and, and then focus, focus those dollars on investing. If you expect your primary home to have a 7 to 10% annual return like the stock market does, you will be sorely disappointed or you'll have to do creative accounting to make that work. I, I think you're exactly right. The studies, maybe that's not the right word, or at least the, the analysis, perhaps it's a better word that I've seen before, Jeremy, where people try to calculate their return on investment for their primary home. The more accurate they are, the lower the return becomes. Totally. And, and the, the ones that I've seen before where people try to claim this 5 or 6 or 8% return, when you actually open up the hood and see the numbers involved, you realize they're not accounting for all of those frictional costs that you just went through. Because there's a lot of them, right. a lot of frictional costs involved. And some of them you can pretend to wish away or, or you can just honestly forget about them. But owning a home is, is expensive. And at least for me and something I encourage readers and listeners of the best interest to think about is it's a family decision first, meaning you know it, it's not an investing decision. You can think about it as a personal finance decision. Can we afford this? Does it make sense? But ultimately, you're putting a roof over your and your family's head. And, and that's the point of owning a home or renting in the first place. Is this the right living space for, for my family? Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Serious question. Why do podcasters constantly ask for ratings and reviews? Yes, they do help highlight our shows to new listeners. They help strangers find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's totally true and a good reason to ask for ratings and reviews, but I have something more important, at least more important to me. I want to know if you like this stuff. I want to know if you like my podcast episodes, my monologues, my guests, the information I share with you and the stories I tell. I want to improve and make your listening more enjoyable in the process. So yeah, I would love to read your reviews. And sure, if you throw a rating in there too, that's great. If you like what I'm doing, please share it with me. It's such a great feeling to read your feedback. I'd love to read your review or see a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you. I saw a really cool post of yours. It caught my eye because you called it the seven sins of investing. What are those sins, Jeremy? The seven sins of investing. So I've been helping people learn about investing for a long time. And it's really simple as core. Spend less than you make, invest, buy and hold, index funds for a long period of time. But I always see people making these seven mistakes. And let's go through them quickly. Sin number one is holding cash in a retirement account. And I, I made a post once that said, my nightmares are fueled by, by young investors holding cash in retirement accounts because it's this insanely common 
an insanely devastating mistake, which is you open up a Roth IRA, you put a bunch of money in, you like put your hands over your head, say, I have a Roth IRA, I put money in, I've done it, I win. And a few years go by and you look in your Roth IRA and you put in $5,000, you check it again and it's, there's like $5,002 in there. And you're like, what's this? I thought this was supposed to grow. And what, what happened is when you put money into a retirement account or any investment account, it's just cash sitting there. You have to take a second step, which is to actually take that cash, cash and purchase something with it like an index fund. And so if you ever look inside of your investment accounts and you see any words like cash, sweep, core, default, money market, anything that, and there's, it is a little bit confusing because they can use a bunch of different words to mean the same thing. But anything that sounds like cash, if you see any amount of money sitting there over like a dollar, then you should be investing. They should take that money and go buy your fund. So that's sin number one. Sin number two is picking individual stocks. Actually, I don't know if, this one kind of pains me because I think choosing individual stocks has a benefit, which is that it's enticing. It's, it encourages people into- it Gets people involved. Right. And it's it's relatable. Oh, Home Depot's, I go there all the time. I should buy stock in their company. It's almost a little bit nostalgic. Like that's what our grandparents did. They owned, they owned 10 shares of Sears Roebuck and they, you know, they sold it 50 years later. I, I consider it to be a sin because it basically opens you up to risk of these companies going into business without higher expected returns. Since we can't know ahead of time which stocks can do better, when you're picking individual stocks, you're adding risk without getting higher expected returns, and that's a bad deal in investing. What's your take on individual stocks? Yeah, it's it's similar. I think for the average person, you are exposing yourself to more errors than you would ever expose yourself to if you are owning an index fund, quite simply. Do I think that if you want to have a little bit of fun and you want to take 1% of your money and buy Berkshire Hathaway because you like Warren Buffett? I get it. I'm not going to tell you that that's the optimal investing decision, but I, I can understand that. But I think the the average scenarios that you and I hear, Jeremy, are the ones where people say, yeah, I've got a diversified portfolio. I'm one-third Apple, one-third Tesla, one-third NVIDIA. All that's, huge US tech that's companies. That's, correct. Those are all very similar. That's the scary scenario. And it's also a little scary. I see on your Instagram post for this and number two, one of the companies that you highlight out of maybe 10 is my beloved Kodak here in Rochester, New York. Poor Kodak. It used to be the lifeblood of our community. Had 80,000 local employees out of a city. I mean, the population of Rochester is 250 in the city itself, 250,000, about a million when you do the whole metro area. So if you think of a million local citizens, 80,000 of them worked at Kodak in about 1990. That's 30 That's years ago. Yeah. Today, it's 1,500. Wow. So in 30 years... Kodak went from 80,000 employees to 1,500, and the businesses you know, essentially went out of business. Stock owners who if they held the whole time lost all of their money. Right. That is one of the risks you run owning an individual stock. And if we took ourselves back to like 1995 or something, you would have every reason to think Kodak would continue to crush it for decades to come. People have been taking more photos every single year. Photos are become, becoming cheaper. Population's growing. You, you could make like 50 arguments why Kodak was going to continue growing. But the unexpected thing happens, right? Digital photography comes out. Kodak doesn't adapt, whatever. And if you look at the biggest companies of the 90s, we might see names like IBM, Sears, General Motors, General Electric. And you know these all didn't go as poorly as Kodak did but they're not in the top 10 anymore, right? right? And so when you're picking individual stocks based on how they've done, in fact, this leads us very nicely into sin number three, 
So number three is don't chase past performance, or I guess the sin would be chasing past performance. Because if you looked at Kodak stock in 1995 and said, oh my gosh, this stock has been crushing it for 15 years. I want the stock that crushes it, so I'm going to buy Kodak. When you look backwards and buy what just did well, you're missing what's about to do well. And so today, you could make a similar argument. The biggest companies in the US, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Tesla, you know, these are superstars today. But if we fast forward 20 years, are they going to still all be in the top 10? I can almost guarantee that they all won't be in this top 10. Maybe one or two will. We don't know the future. But when you're just looking at what just recently did well, you're missing out on that new startup. You're missing out on, you know, in the 90s, we were buying Kodak, but we weren't buying Netflix or something, you know, the, the unexpected thing that's going to do really well. And so don't buy your investments based on what did well in the past. Buy broad index funds based on what will do well, what we, you know, to guarantee ourselves that we're going to own whatever happens to do well going forward. And I, I agree with what you said earlier, by the way, which is, yeah, I actually have a 10% rule with 90% of your portfolio, buy and hold index funds, but with 10% go nuts. If you want to buy individual stocks, you want to buy some crypto, you want to buy some ETFs, whatever, go for it. And I, when I say ETFs, I mean, you know, like actively manage or narrow mm -hmm. sector mm -hmm. ETFs. You know, ETFs are fantastic to buy for their low cost and broad nature of the uh, the index fund versions. But yeah, don't don't be speculating with your whole portfolio because if you're constantly buying what just did well, you're going to miss what's about to do well. Yeah, John Bogle famously said, actually not famously said, I think it's one of his lesser known quotes, but there's an excellent speech slash essay he did about it. The quote is, the iron rule of investing is reversion to the mean. It always rears its head, reversion to the mean. That which is high will eventually come back to average. That which is low will eventually come back to average. And he's essentially restating your sin number three there, Jeremy. What is sin number four? Yeah, on that reversion of the mean, right now, everyone hates international stocks. Everyone's like, right. why would you buy international? Right. Right. S&P 500, tech stocks, that's the way, like those are, that's what's doing great. But I'm like, you know, it's really hard for me to push this narrative. It's not popular. But personally, with my money, I have like 35 to 40% of my portfolio in non-US stocks. And yeah, they've done poorly the last 10 years. But is, is the next 10 years going to look like the last 10? Probably not. And like you said, reversion of the mean. I don't, you know, it's hard to give you a very compelling argument that like the US market's not going to do well and international markets are going to do well. But I kind of think maybe international markets are underpriced. Maybe there's a little bit too much speculation built into the US tech, tech stocks. And fast forward 10 years, oh, international markets have been averaging 12% a year while US has been averaging seven. Suddenly, I look pretty smart for buying international. All right. Sorry. I'm no. long-winded. I, I love, love talking it. about investing. So number four is timing the market. Everyone, kind of just like what I was talking about, everyone loves to guess what's about to happen. And right now is no better example. In fact, 2023 is a great example, which is at the beginning of 2023, you could find endless headlines about the gloom and doom coming to the economy. Inflation, recession, the market's crashing. We had a bad 2022, blah, blah. You know, meanwhile, the market's up, I think, like 16% or something this year. And so people were moving their money to cash. They're like, ooh, high yield savings accounts are paying 4%. I'm going to get my 4%. If you put your money into a high yield savings account in 2023 and got 4%, and it's not, the year's not even over, so maybe you're at like 3% so far, you missed, you underperformed the market to date by like 14%. Like underperforming by 14% is. Devastating. And, Devastating. and that's yeah. right. And that's what timing the market can do. And so timing the market is any sort of decision 
based on what you think is going to happen or what is happening. Move my money in, move my money out, move to bonds, move to stocks, move this, move that. And it's a really tough pill for an investor to swallow that you kind of need to ignore all that. It seems like, and again, I kind of go back to human evolution. We're designed as humans to react to stimulus. If we hear a twig break, break in the jungle, a tiger might be looming and we should run. But if we hear a scary stock headline, we shouldn't pull our money. In fact, like you said, probably the opposite. You know, as everyone else is running out, we should probably be running in. And so you kind of have to ignore, ignore noise. Don't try, don't time the market. Right. Don't, don't do something. Just stand there. Another John Bogle quote, <laughs> and uh, another shameless plug. Only because I, I literally published it this morning, an article about a terrific real life stock lesson from just the last two weeks that the real world stock market provided us. Uh, against trying to time the market, a, a lesson of just zoom out and wait for things to happen simply because the market was down something like 10% from the end of July through the end of October. Now, down 10% in three months doesn't feel good. Nobody's having fun. And it would be very human to say, I'm sick of this. I'm going to yeah, cross just, my fingers, just, sell. Just and, wait and, wait it out. Wait till the market recovers before I put my money. It makes perfect, correct, makes correct. perfect sense on the face of it. And, and little would that have investor have known that the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, the chairman, was about to come out and say, yeah, we think we're done with interest rate hikes. And the market popped for 6% in one week. Well, if you sat out that week because you, you were just sick of it, missing 6% is not as bad as the example that, that you gave of, of underperforming by 13%. But 6% sucks if that's what you missed out on. Right. Yeah, if you're waiting for the market to recover, you'll miss it. You know, you have right. to you have to be investing when it's down. That's when you want to be buying when it's down. And you know, that's a totally. great example. What's the number five, Jeremy? So number five is paying high fees. And you and I, we live in a world of financial educated people. But in in the real world, if you walk into any town USA and ask people what they're doing, oftentimes they are investing via some sort of high fee mutual fund or advisor mm -hmm. or 401k or, you know, and if you walk into like a strip mall financial advisor anywhere in the US, they will put you into some real crappy products with real high fees. They won't, they won't fully or correctly disclose any of that. And it's very hard for you to even know without kind of really looking hard into where your money is going. And so just as an example, if you, if you pay a 2% annual fee and some advisor will be like, that's really high, but I see 4% annual fees. I see 5 and 6%, oh. you know, loads on purchases and, you know, right, it's right. very easy to find people who are in this range of a 2% annual fee. A 2% annual fee over the course of a 40-year investing career cuts your investment about in half. So if you would have had $2 million, you'd have $1 million just for that fee that you're paying that advisor. And a lot of people will say, "Oh, I don't want to do it myself. I don't want to figure it out." It's not worth a million dollars to you. You know, like the few hours it's going to take to open account and put the money in yourself. I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss the value of an advisor, but you should at least understand the impact of the fees because there may be no more valuable three hours of your life, financially speaking, than looking into your fees and figuring out if you can minimize them. Totally, totally. And and something I've I've learned in my doing this, Jeremy, you know, the best interest working with clients as well is there's such a wide range of quote unquote advice and advising. And it absolutely behooves anybody out there, if you're considering to getting professional financial help, know what you're paying for and know what you're paying. Because some of the cases I've seen before, you're talking about 
mutual funds with one plus percent, advisors charging commissions to sell them, getting five to 6% load fees upfront. And then what does the client get out of that? A 30 minute phone call once a year. Right. So you're talking about someone, someone who, whose incentive is to sell, not to correct, provide advice. Correct. Correct. So you're talking, if someone has a $500,000 account in that case, they might be paying $10,000 a year plus 5% anytime they make any trades in exchange for 30 minutes of advice. And talk about a raw deal. Yeah. So I hear you. There's some, there's some nasty stuff out there. So everybody know, know what your fees are and know what you're getting for them. Know, see, if, see if it's worthwhile. We've got to think long-term, Jeremy. And that brings us to sin number six. That's right. Sin number six is thinking short-term. We all know people like this who are trying to get rich quick or live for the weekend. Or I just constantly hear from people who are, I, I, I give them this pitch. I'm like, hey, few hundred bucks a month, spend less than you make, throw it in the next fund, leave it there, don't touch it, minimize fees, let it, let it go. They're like, no, bro, I don't want to be, I don't want, want to be rich when I'm old. I'm like, you want to be broken, you're old? Because you're going to be. And so I think, you know, they're like, no, I'm going to, you know, Dogecoin is the future or no, I'm going to put it all on Tesla or, you know, I, I literally talked to someone the other day who, who had $500,000 and didn't want to get rich the slow way. $500,000, you put an index fund, doubles every seven years. You know, seven years, that's 1 million, 14 years, that's 2 million, 21 years, that's 4 million. So 21 years, they'd have 4 million bucks. That's, that's insane, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, they bought some, they chased past performance, they picked stocks, they committed all the sins, right? They committed every sin, th thought, thought short term, how can I turn this 500,000 to a million in a year? And that 500,000 became 100,000. They lost 80% of the value. And they asked me like, how do I get it back? I'm like, if I knew how to 5X money overnight, I'd be doing that all day. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Like, and you thought you did and you learned the hard way that you did because you, you did it with all your might. If you wanted to do 10%, sure. You know, if they, if they took 10%, 50,000 and turned that 50,000 to 5,000, then that would have sucked. They'd still have 450,000 growing with the market over time. Don't try to get rich quick. And if you do, keep it to a you know very small portion of your portfolio. Right, and, and that example there, 500,000 down to 100,000 based on the fact that they are coming to you with that story. It sounds like they suffered the permanent impairment of capital, which is something that Warren Buffett would say is the number one biggest risk that investors can face. And, and it's something that investing in a diversified index fund, you completely negate that risk, save for one potential exception. If you invest in an index fund and an asteroid hits the world and destroys the global economy, you have permanently impaired your capital. That's true. Short of that example, that the natural diversification of an index fund will prevent that fate from occurring. And that talk about a terrible fate. I mean, going from 500,000 to 100,000, essentially your portfolio will be limping for the rest of your life. Yeah. And yeah. And then they asked me, should I keep doing this to get to like, to win it back? It's almost like turns into, into like gamblers mentality, which is right. I can just win it back. But we all know how that turns out for gamblers. They just lose more, they go into debt, and then you have to hit rock bottom. Like, you know, my advice was like, pick your hundred thousand, throw it in an X fund. You just you just spent four hundred thousand dollars on education. It was an expensive <laughs> lesson. But better than lose a hundred thousand and you lost all, better than going to debt trying to win back, right? So it's it's a tough right. pill to swallow though. Right. So our listeners, they're not gonna commit that sin. They are going to be slow and steady investors. They're also not gonna commit sin number seven, which is 
It is the most deadly sin. Maybe, you know, I said one was maybe the worst, but this one's even worse than number one. So number seven is not investing early and often. I kind of gave you an example earlier in the show where I said, if you invest 250 bucks a year for 10 years, you have like 3000 bucks because you didn't invest very often. You only invested for 10 years. That's enough. But if you invest 250 bucks for 40 years, you'll have never done worse than a million dollars. And so everything else we talked about, the fees, the performance, the stock picking, the, you know, everything, all the other sins, they are irrelevant if you're not putting money in. You know, if you could, if you're the optimal, perfect investor, every fee, every, every tax break, everything right, and then you're putting in a hundred bucks a year, doesn't matter. You might as well not even do it almost, you know. But if you are just a mediocre investor and you're picking some random stocks and some random mutual funds and getting some random taxes on them, but you're putting in a thousand bucks a month, you're going to be extremely wealthy. And so I think some people get so academic about it, they forget what matters most, which is just how much money you put in. That's how you get rich. Awesome. Thank you, Jeremy. And now one more thing I I did want to touch on, because we had a cool conversation when we saw each other down in New Orleans. And this actually goes back to, you know, earlier we were talking about the wide spectrum of financial advice out there, professional financial advice. And on the one end of the spectrum, you have those, you know, 4% fees that you were alluding to where basically you get nothing for that fee and it's just an, a raw deal for the individual investor. But on the other end, you have some pretty high quality investment advice out there. And that leads me to the topic of nectarine. Why exactly am I asking you about a wonderful citrus fruit? Well, and it, is it citrus? I thought, is, is it like a peach? I should probably learn <laughs> what it is. <laughs> oh, you're totally right. I, I, was, know, thinking, t- I was thinking tangerine, tangerine maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. A nectarine, nectarine is, is similar uh, to a peach. Yeah. Tangerine is like an orange, a nectarine is like a smooth peach. You're exactly right. And when we were talking about advisors, for the last four or five years I've been doing personal finance club, people ask me, how do I find a good advisor? And I'm like, it's really hard. Because if you walk into someone's office, the ones that charge you what, what's called fee only, they want to charge you a percent of assets under management. They often have minimums of a quarter million or half a million dollars. Even, even if you qualify for that, their incentive is to manage your money, not to provide advice. If you don't qualify for that, you're in the world of the strip mall financial advisor where they're going to sell you crappy products. And that's not even the worst. The worst is really the, the insurance salesmen insurance, who are going right. to parade their insurance products as investments and have rip your money apart even worse. And so you know, what a lot of really wise financial, or financial experts say is to find an advice-only advisor. That's someone you pay hourly or based on the project. You pay them just for the advice. They don't manage your money. They have no products to sell. They're just experts in their realm. And then they give you the advice. And I always hear kind of people like us banging that drum advice only and, and find these types of hourly advisors. And then the next question out of the you know typical investor's mouth is, okay, where do I find them? And my answer has always been, oh, I have no idea where to find them. And for years, I've thought that because they're really hard to find. They're these great investment advisors that are scared. They're usually independent. They usually own their own firms. They have different pricing, different processes for finding them. And so I built Nectarine. We've been, we've been working out for the last year. We launched about two months ago. And basically, we've scoured the country for the best investment advisors and put them into a consistent advice-only platform. We can log in. You choose your state because investment advice is based on your state. You see the advisor serving your state. You can review them, compare them, and then you can check out right on the app. And there are no products. They never manage your money. There's no sales pitch. There's no strings attached. There's no recurring fees. There's no nothing. Right now, it's 150 bucks for one hour. 
and you just get to share a screen. They can look at, they can put eyes on your investment accounts. They can see if you're holding cash. They can see if you're committing any of the sins. They can see what your fees are if you're working with another advisor. And they have no incentive other than for to be really happy. And then we have we have like live availability and reviews built in right to the site. So you can go look at the reviews. You can look at the availability. And it's at hellonectarine.com. Thank you for letting me plug the site. Oh, you're welcome. We'll throw that in the show notes, Jeremy. And I'm curious. So if someone out there, can they get anything from one hour, what almost amounts to like a little financial coaching session, all the way up to, I want to buy 20 hours worth of the service for this big holistic financial plan? Right now, the only service we offer is one hour at a time. We will expand that in the future, but we think there's so much you can do in an hour and it's so hard to find an hour that we want to basically disrupt the space a little bit with that first. We'll probably have a more complete financial plan product later, but we only want to do it insofar as it's serving the customer the best. You can always buy multiple hours if you want. You can book more meetings with your advisor if you want. You know, It's not everything to everyone, but it's filling in a massive gap, I think, for people who just want to talk to an expert without all the scary stuff normally associated with financial advice. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Jeremy. Now, I know some people are already Googling Personal Finance Club. If they're not familiar with you, they'll be able to find you that way because I just tested it. It works like a charm. But we'll throw links into the show notes. Where can people find you? Yeah. Thankfully, Google still is uh, is working for Personal Finance Club. But yeah, if you want to find me, you can Google Personal Finance Club. Most of the magic happens on Instagram at Personal Finance Club. Or if you want to get one of those hourly financial advice sessions, it is hellonectarine.com. Unfortunately, if you Google just nectarine right now, you will find a lot about the smooth peach. But if you Google nectarine money or nectarine financial or nectarine advice or anything like that, the real site will come up. Awesome. Jeremy Schneider of Personal Finance Club. Thanks for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. Thank you, Jesse. It was an honor. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.